0: a country
1: and I after
0: my shadow. Hey everybody, welcome back to the historic 10th episode of the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson. And I am very excited about this episode. Uh, we uh, will keep it brief up front with the preamble because this episode is definitely running a bit long today. The feature interview is with Jack Hitt, author of Off the Road and contributor to the film The Way. And uh, I speak with Jack for uh, a bit about his 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 book, his pilgrimage experience, including walking from Arles to Santiago in 1981 and uh, his experience with the film. And then I also speak with Jessica Johnson, a pilgrim from Vermont who has a really interesting experience having walked a number of different routes over the last couple of years. And we really focus in particular on issues of pilgrim safety and particularly for women traveling alone. So that's the plan, and again, I'll just very quickly cut to the the heart of the episode, and that's Jack's interview, followed by Jessica. So thanks, as always, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I'm thrilled to make it to the 10th episode, and enjoy. Jack Hitt is the author of Off the Road, A Modern Day Walk Down the Pilgrim's Route into Spain, published in 1994. His book, in turn, inspired parts of the film The Way, and it also partially inspired my own pilgrimage back in 2002. So thank you for that, Jack, and thanks as well for joining me on the podcast. Great to be here. It's uh, exciting to talk with you. Um, Your book was one of the first I read on the Camino, and uh, it certainly is one that I've read a number of times ever since. It's uh, been a tremendously influential book for me.
2: Great, great. Why did, so what did you the book was part of it, but what else? What else drove you to to jump on the
0: road? So in 2001, I graduated from university, and I'd been working full time throughout. And I knew that I was going to go travel for a year. So my friend and I did kind of the stereotypical two American dudes with backpacks buy a rail pass <laughs> and travel around Western Europe thing. Right. And right. Uh, at the end of that, I f- like it was fun, but I also was kind of getting uh, sightseeing uh, overdose, and I just realized that it, that I wanted to have a, a radically different experience, and so you know I think I dialed up old Alta Vista or Lycos, and. Uh, Started searching. Wow,
2: that's, for <laughs> that's old school now.
0: Okay.
2: Yep. <laughs> and, <laughs> is it, is it, you didn't have your Nightcrawler or your Northern Exposure? What was it? Northern Vision? No, I didn't okay. use
0: a, Excite yeah. either, but uh, but probably Alta Vista. <laughs> and, uh, right. and searched around. And uh, eventually I found a reference to the, the pilgrimage. And then I found the confraternity of St. James in the UK. And then I was mm-hmm. off and running. Um, and And soon after that, I found your book. Great right so it's uh yeah tremendously influential to me and one of the things that I'm that uh when I was rereading it for uh talking with you I uh, I noticed this time that you mentioned that you'd walked to Santiago in 1981 following paved roads into the city so I'd love to hear more about that what was that experience like walking there just a handful of years after Franco died
2: well um you know, it's funny, I went essentially the same way you went, except mm-hmm. in 1981. Uh, a bunch of us were going to go um, and just do the road as some kind of, you know, fun excursion. And and then everybody kind of bailed out, you know, life <laughs> took over, they got a job, whatever. Um, somebody got divorced, and, uh, there was a bunch of people of different ages. And it finally wound up to me and this other guy that I barely knew. Um, and I remember calling him in Alabama and saying, I'm game if you are. He was like, I'm there and these two strangers just jumped on a plane and flew to France. We started in Arles. And um Wow. And we had we had roadmaps. I mean there weren't there wasn't like a confraternity. There wasn't uh... there weren't easy it wasn't easy to find out even where the road was,
1: mm-hmm. you know?
2: Um it was still done. Um and of course there were people who knew that you you know what the where the French road was that, you know, you came in through. Um came into Pamplona in some way and then, you know, um, moved, you know, <laughs> do what from there. you know. Yep. And when we did it, yeah, we spent a lot of time on the shoulder of highways, because of course, if you think about it, where's the true, whatever, whatever the true road to Santiago, mm-hmm. um, that road that got beaten down by pilgrims for a thousand years, well, that road was probably turned into the interstate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're talking about the true road, that's probably it. And then, what happened, I remember in the, after we came back in 81, um, there were a number of news reports I remember seeing about um, people being killed on the road. Mm. In fact, I think people when we were there that year, someone was run over. Um, and, and, and various towns... Put together that 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 the friends of the road to Santiago. You know, hmm. I think that's what it was called at the time, Amigos de, de Camino, and um, and they basically got those rights sort of way through more sort of pastoral settings to mm-hmm. recreate the kind of you know medieval walkable quality of the road. And so that's, you know, the yellow arrows that we all follow now are really a function of, of, of that mid-80s kind of revival of the road. But, of course, the road has been revived a thousand times yeah. <laughs> in the course of a millennium or so. So this is just yet one more sort of incarnation of the road. And then I think the European Union picked it up, and the year I did it, and I did it again in 91 to write this book, I was 35. That was my, you know, big thing, it was like, you know, in the middle of my life, I was to get married. I mean, all these sort of big questions were weighing on me. Another grand tradition of walking <laughs> the road. Um, and, uh, and so I went, and, you know, and then I wanted to write this book, kind of figure out, like, what, why do we still do this kind of primal thing of like taking this long walk? Um, and by the way, for all pilgrims who've never read Evan Cannell's A Long Desire, hmm. uh, Evan Cannell's a mid-20th century that one of the best writers that there is, it has nothing to do with pilgrimage, but it has everything to do with this uh, weird impulse that many of us homo sapiens have to take off and walk a long distance. Hmm. He calls it, the book is called A Long Desire, and it's like seven or eight essays about different famous pilgrimages throughout history, right? mm um, or just people who like Marco Polo, you know, just people who said, "Like, I think I'll walk two thousand miles to to Asia." <laughs> <laughs> um, and 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 really, he gets into the deep, deep meta, you know, uh, issues of why some people are just driven to take these long walks before you even get to the questions of spirituality or or traditional roots or anything like that. Uh, a great book, but um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, so. So uh, and so in '91, so I went back, and and it was amazing that uh, a that the, the friends French had really configured this kind of wonderful road, mm-hmm. uh, the one that we're all walking these days, right? Yep. And also, the European Union had adopted the Road to Santiago as kind of like an uh, this kind of unifying like activity for the whole continent, you know, because the some of these original. Some of the original routes go all the way back as far east as like Warsaw and stuff. I mean, there were yeah. you know there were pilgrim accounts of people walking from all kinds of very distant, very eastern locations, coming all the way through to Paris or through Arles or wherever, and coming up and into uh, Spain through uh, Saint Jean pierre de Port, usually, or uh, some some went a little further south to Haka right over the
1: border, mm-hmm.
2: um, and um, and so and so those accounts so so in the sort of early 90s, the European Union promoted the road. There was lots of uh, propaganda and, you know, commercials (laughs) and people challenging others to walk the road. And if you read my book, you know that the the crazy Flemish guys, who I'm still Mm -hmm. in touch with, actually, um, uh, you know, they were walking the road for this, uh, again, another grand tradition of, of pilgrim walking. Um, to settle a sort of local dispute in their town, you know, with both that their church wanted to build a new organ. And the poor members of the church wanted the rich people to pay for it. And the rich people were kind of fed up with always being tapped for the dough when, you know, when <laughs> push came to shove. And so two of the members of the church declared that the older men, we're walk, we're gonna, we shall walk the road to Santiago. And everybody can, you know, kick in however much they want per kilometer. And that became the solution. And they were the they were the Flemish uh, guys that I walked with. Um, yeah, for a large part of it. Um, and so you know, I mean, one of the cool things about the road to Santiago is that almost any motivation to go
1: mm-hmm.
2: ends up being a great one. <laughs> <laughs> the road will shape your motivation into something far more
0: pilgrimy than you anticipated. When yeah. You left. Yeah, that's absolutely true, um, and I, I want actually want to ask you about that because you say um, towards the end of the book that uh, uh, you tell the official in the pilgrim office that your motive for walking was to discover your motive. <laughs> so, but I don't know, that, I don't know that you ever tell us what your motive was. So, so what was your motive, and has it? Well, has I, will, it I will say that my yeah, well, that's, I mean,
2: I think part of my point is that we we start the road for one reason, and then the development of that question
1: mm-hmm.
2: becomes far more complicated than you thought it was. <laughs> I mean, if you if you want to walk the road and have a, a full-blown Christian revelation and embrace Jesus by the end and, and hear a chorus of angels, um, that can also happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Shirley MacLaine uh, had that experience and, and wrote a, also a book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things I liked about the movie that Emilio Estevez made and he sort of stays away from the kind of stereotypical pat answer at the end mm-hmm. about why anybody walked the road to Santiago. There's actually kind of a lovely confusion that comes at the end. Mm-hmm. It's not pat and it's not simple. And there's not a nice little bow that you can tie at the end of the book to say, Hey, here was my motive here was my motivation. You know? Yep. The the road sort of beats all of the for me, anyway, mm-hmm. it beats a lot of the cliches out of you. Do you think you're going for one reason? You end up going for a whole multiplicity of others, mm-hmm. and they're all fascinating, right? Yep. Um, and that question, by the way, I mean, if you read my book or if you walk watch the area, you'll find yourself that question never goes away and never gets fully or satisfactorily answered. Which is another reason why I like the, the movie. Uh, if you remember the, the the Dutch guy wanted to lose weight and get back to his girlfriend or wife, and the French woman wanted to quit smoking, and there's a lovely scene at the end where they meet back up with Martin Sheen, <laughs> and she's smoking, and he's he's <laughs> badger than <at him> ever, <laughs> you know, all the, like all of their all of their original animations <laughs> are shot. And, and 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 the Irish writer Jack, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, as a conglomeration of characters from the book, he named it after me, uh, but. Um, you know, he's still a jackass. I mean, he's a bit of a jerk <laughs> in the movie. Uh, by the way, a little funny story there. The yeah. uh, step has called me up uh, or uh, wrote me earlier uh, before we were making the movie and said, listen, I've taken a bunch of different characteristics of these characters and some people I know, and I've made this character uh, Jack, who's an Irish writer, a bit of a jerk, uh, who, you know, uh, talks too much and drinks too much and has writer's block and is a is a total pot." and a pain in the neck throughout the whole road. And uh, yada, 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 the Irish writer who's a drunk. And I said, <laughs> how dare you? Everyone knows that my family is Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... I don't know. But... Uh, the... the So like I said, you know, the, the pat answers that come, or that you, you seek, uh, that simple rounded ending to your pilgrimage will be one of the first things that you don't get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> there are people who arrive there, fall on their knees, see Jesus, clouds park, hear choruses of angels. Shirley McLean wrote that book. If that's what you need, she wrote it. Yep. She uh, channels Charlemagne and St. James himself. She's uh, She speaks to the dead. Uh, it's full of all kinds of, like, cliche Hollywood movie revelations and epiphanies. Um
0: and she ends up uh, in Atlantis too, so Yeah, Where's Atlantis.
2: I yeah. mean, yeah, she she's got it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, uh no no sour grapes here. You know, my book <laughs> sold my you know, my pathetic amount and hers, you know, sold millions. <laughs> so that <laughs> just goes to show you. Yeah. Um I should have thrown a little bit more magic in there. Um but uh you know, one of my favorite moments actually in the in my pilgrimage, um was when, but I think we were at uh, Ponforava, some town like that, and there was this—I don't know if you remember this moment. I couldn't find where the pilgrims were hanging out, and so I went to a uh, 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 one of those
0: parador, uh, the
2: Parador, uh, uh, well, yeah, in so Via Pracate del Bierzo. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's where it was, Via Franca. That's, yep. you know, via so- that's right. And I went to the I went to the tire door. It was kind of a modest one, actually. But, you know, it was bad. It was sheets. Uh, you know, there was you know, shampoo in the bathroom. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, well, you know, I might as well try one of these. I didn't even think about it, you know. And then later I went out to get some food. And, and someone said, oh, you know, the pilgrim shelter over here. And it turns out to be this glorious pilgrim shelter there. It's just fantastic. So it's run by this crazy guy. And, um, and you know, it was under, like, these um, it was just like a large tent, very airy and very comfortable. And anyway, I went in there and ate dinner with everybody. And somebody said, "Like what bunk are you in?" And I was like, <laughs> uh, "Actually, I'm staying at the Parador." And all of a sudden, like, "Whoa!" It's just like I uncorked this huge fight about how much suffering do you have to impose on yourself on this road, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, do you do it? I mean, is that what the road's about, about being uncomfortable? In, in which case, like, why are we all wearing tennis shoes? You know, um, <laughs> you know that kind of thing. And, and this huge debate broke out about hardship and suffering and how that, you know, tied into what the pilgrimage was. I know that, uh, there, there were a couple of Germans that were along on that one. I'd encountered them several times. They were very strict about what they thought the road was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. They knew the rules. <laughs> Even though <laughs> no one's ever written those rules down, they knew them, you know? And I think one of my favorite revelations in that site, because we had all kinds of uh, arguments that night uh, mm-hmm. about this, about my going to a power door, going to a hotel. Um, one of my favorite revelations is that someone brought up this character who was known as the German monk
1: hmm.
2: at that time. Um, and I'm sure every Season, he has a different name, but the, the word was is that there was this German monk who was barefooted and just had a robe and brought no money and slept on the ground and took only you know handouts from the from town to town and uh, and everyone I, I tried to find him because of course I'm I'm going to write a book and this guy sounds like the perfect pilgrim he's like the idealized pilgrim right Yep, he's wearing a broad hat and all of everything. And I could never find him. Like everybody had just talked to somebody who had seen him, and so on. And it wasn't. I was about three quarters away. I probably a Franca that I realized that there was no German monk. That mm-hmm. this monk was this kind of projection of everyone's anxiety that they weren't like authentic enough in yeah. their pilgrimage, right? That they didn't really have the right motive, that their motive was corrupt, that they were there because they were, you know, on an easy path or, you know, a rail, a rail pass for mm-hmm. in Europe, or they were there to escape the draft. I ran across a couple of those guys. Um, but, of course, you look through history, like, those are all great traditional raisins. <laughs> 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 you know, I'm fleeing the law, avoiding the gallows. You know, there are all kinds of reasons that one walks the road to Santiago. None of them very noble, yeah. uh, or surely the Plain ask, you know, um, but that's the great thing about the, the brutality of walking—you know—a uh, chunk of kilometers every day and just taking on that that, that very primal workload—is yep. that a lot of the bunk in your thinking gets beat out of you, <laughs> and I think it's the almost the absence of all your bullshitty motives that makes. That is that is the one of the revelations you
0: have by the time you get there, you <laughs> and know? and yet one of the one of the realities is that I, I I do think and myself included you fall into this habit of wanting to play up what you're doing to elevate what you're doing to a higher level, and the the use of tourist as a condescending epithet for people who don't meet the standards of the German monk gets flung around all That's the time. Right. So I, I do find it interesting in your book that you just come straight out and say pilgrims are tourists.
2: Right, well, so so this gets into one of these great definitional questions. What yeah. is a tourist? What is a tourist? Uh, you know, uh, many people have noted this, but, like, you know, people go to Graceland in, you know, <laughs> Elvis's house all the time, right? And it's called Graceland. There's an eternal fire over his... Uh, grave. Uh, His name is Elvis. Uh, He lives, right? Elvis lives. is the bumper sticker you can buy there. I mean, weirdly, Elvis has, like, absorbed all of the kind of apparatus of pilgrimage Mm -hmm. uh, from a thousand years ago, almost sort of without knowing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's supposed to be dead, but there are those who believe he lives. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I, I think you get into one of these impossible kind of uh, philosophical arguments when you try to dissect tourism from pilgrimage uh, uh, you know it becomes this question of like are your motives more pure than mine are mine more pure than yours
1: mm-hmm.
2: and maybe if you're driving in a car and visiting Graceland and buying bumper <laughs> stickers that's one thing uh, when you're on the road and you're, you know, you're going through this work because that's one of the things that the road requires of you you must work mm-hmm. whether you're on a bike or foot right it is it is sweat equity every day mm-hmm. and um, and and it's like i said it's this primal act of walking whatever you know 20 30 40 miles a day and and all of this sort of apparatus of daily life you you know hopefully your cell phones and then, when I did it, there were no cell phones, but there were other things, right? Mm -hmm. There were, you know, Walkmans and, you know, everything else that you could, like, carry along with you, but after a while, you got rid of all that stuff, because it was too hard to carry it all, Mm -hmm. you know? You kind of stripped down to, like, just the very basics that you needed, and the walk became the thing that you were focused on. Um, And, like, in the same way that, you know, you kind of stripped down physically as a pilgrim, I remember throwing out my tent and getting rid of all the stuff, because I realized I just didn't need it, Mm -hmm. you know? And kind of psychologically and spiritually, you do the same thing. Yeah, a lot of things get shed. Um, if anything, by the end, um, it's it's really the things that you left that hmm. are important, not so much the things that you carried or even the things that you gained. You know. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, I think that's part of like Emilio's idea when mm-hmm. he made the movie, right? Um, so. Uh, Anyway, I don't, I don't know if that answers the question. I, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. Mm-hmm. And if it is an easy question to answer, <laughs> then you're probably a tourist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man. The other thing I was really surprised by when I was rereading your book um, was, so that you walked in 1991, and we're you know, two and you know a half decades later, And in some ways, the book feels familiar. And in some ways, it's almost like you're describing a different world. Like here are a couple of short quotes. Uh, At one point, you note, as a Western practice, pilgrimage is not merely out of fashion. It's dead. And then later, you describe the churches along the way as the churches are bolted, unoccupied, unused and unwanted. It's a different world today, and I know you mm-hmm. walked again in in 2013. Did it feel like a fundamentally different experience?
2: Well, yeah. So I did. I did walk it with my kids. My kids wanted to walk it after hearing about this all this time. So <laughs> it was five years ago, yeah, we all we all walked the road. Uh, yeah, 96. Yeah, um, a lot of those churches are still bolted. Um, you know, especially these small villages where um, you know there's just not either the money or, um, or the participation to, to keep them going. I mean, you visit them, you know, they're like historical sites practically, you know. Yep. Um, but uh, but the pilgrimage is so much more popular now. I mean, um, uh, so that has totally changed. I mean, like, for instance, when I walked it in 91, it was very easy to spend. You could easily fall out of the group and be alone for days. hmm Right? I'm not sure if you go at the you know traditional times now, you could do that anymore. I'm not sure you could be alone. Um, although the year we did it was a holy year, so that was madness. I yep. don't know if you know, you, know, you know, the holy year is when the St. James Day falls on a Sunday, yep. and the Vatican makes a big deal about it. so tons of uh, Catholics end up being on the road. And of course, the road is insanely ecumenical, Let me just bad. I mean, <laughs> uh, I ran across everybody on the road to Santiago. It's, uh, it, uh, and, you know, the road's existence apparently predates even the, the Catholic Church, so it, it, there's something, you know, there's a continuity there that's fairly awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, the... Um, I guess it is a little different, but, but uh, and, and I think the, the road has revived people's interest in just sort of like what what a church is, and what churches were a thousand years ago. I mean, one of my favorite sort of revelations in my book was standing in, I don't know, I can't remember the old town where I spent like two days, just like inside this Romanesque church,
1: hmm.
2: uh, studying it, and realizing that you know, around the year one thousand, when the world didn't end because everyone thought the world was going to end then, just like they did in Y two K, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, But at that time, you know, there had been, like, centuries of, like, Viking raids and murders and all kinds of other, you know, uh, chaotic uh, wars and, you know, whatever. And then, roughly around the year 1000, all that kind of died away, and there was a sort of, like, peace, you know? Yeah. Um, Churches were largely built out of wood uh, before that time apparently because they knew that they would be burned down by marauding hordes, and so there's no point in building a kind of permanent structure. But the Romanesque sort of revival happens uh, in the 11th century, and churches start being built out of stone, because mm-hmm. they think they're going to last for another millennium, and they do. If you walk through Santiago, it's really one of the great architectural tours that you'll ever take, um, because there is just this concatenation of beautiful uh, 11th and 12th century, uh, Romanesque, you know, pre Gothic churches, uh, all the way along. And one of the, one of the things that you discover, if you're a pilgrim, is that when you walk into these churches, you're kind of the celebrity in the sculpture. <laughs> <laughs> They're all about pilgrimage, right? And pilgrims are all over the place in the iconography of the churches. Mm-hmm. This was the way of the church trying to speak to the illiterate, you know, pilgrim on their way to, to Santiago. Mm -hmm. Um, this was the I I call it the television of its day because try to imagine you are a 12th century peasant there's no such thing as a picture you've never seen a picture there's no pictures anywhere in Mm -hmm. your life right you're in a field somewhere you live in a hut you know there's, there's no imagery right imagery is amazing to behold and so when you come into town and this Romanesque church which probably took a century to be built um covered in this, like, glorious sculpture, all filled with these narratives and storytelling and and accounts out of the Bible that you've only heard about from the priest, this had to be Mm mind-boggling, you know? And, you know, we now know that most of these Romanesque churches were highly painted in vibrant colors, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We look at them today, the paint's all gone, it's this black-and-white kind of stony affair. We have this very austere attitude about the Church, Mm -hmm. Uh, When I went to the one I was visiting, um, there was an a cappella group that was in the church, and they were singing these sort of like lugubrious, sort of (laughs) Gregorian songs. And I remember, you know, all my reading was showing like how insanely lively churches were a thousand years ago. Yeah. They were full of these glorious paintings. They were filled with candlelight. There were constant masses going on. Um, one of the reasons they swung the censer, the incense thing, um, is to, to, to cover up the stench of the crowded, thinking <laughs> bodies of humanity that were stuffed in there. So, you know, we, we look at these churches and go, oh, what a, you know, this is the glory days of the church when they were these lovely, button-down, you know, kind of very solemn affairs. No, they were circuses. You know, this was MTV, <laughs> this was... Uh, you know, they were crowded with people, noisy, stinky. You know, and and people were in awe yeah. of the imagery that they saw. They came to this the way we would come to like a Donald Trump debate. <laughs> you know, this was like, <laughs> oh my God, look at what is that? What's going on here? You know, this is amazing, right? <laughs> and um, and and it's amazing to me that we've we've redefined the, the Romanesque church as this kind of you know. This tidy little quiet waspy enclave of you know uh, solemn a cappella music, <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, to a medieval pilgrim, this was—they were the celebrities. Mm-hmm. We, when we showed up in these towns, it was a huge deal. The accounts all show that, yeah. you know. And and you occasionally get a taste of that when you're on the road. You know, you mm-hmm. will. I mean, it's still even still when it's packed. You come into some of these towns and they're always, I, I always have some encounter where someone is, you know, thrilled to to sit with a pilgrim or take you out to dinner or, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. the locals. Yeah. Um, so.
0: <laughs> I believe you're the first to ever compare a Romanesque church to a Donald Trump debate. So um, congratulations.
2: <laughs> well, there's something like this big and noisy and brassy about it that's just been completely lost, right? We've just yeah. let that all wither away, and we, we've fantasized that this is, there was this placid, lovely moment when, in, in church history when it was just, uh, you know, this solemn, you know, sort of button-down thing. Yeah. You know, when you get to the, when you get to the end in, in Santiago, that, that's a Romanesque cathedral covered in, a, in a I believe, a you know, sort of Baroque Uh, Mm -hmm. facade, right? And one of the great things that you get to see when you get to Santiago is that you get to see a a Romanesque uh, church that was covered up from the weather Mm -hmm. 350 years ago, you know, or so. And and so some of the paint is still on the statuary, Mm -hmm. right? You still see some of the colorations. You can really get a sense that, like, oh, this was not this, like, gray or black and white, you know, sort of... um, Solemn affair. It was this very lively. It's meant to like speak to you through imagery, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and and you know, if you look at the iconography outside the church and go inside the church, you know, the outside of the church is gargoyles and monsters, and uh, much of it is a is an imagistic way of telling people a thousand years ago that, of course, your life outside the church, literally outside the church, is this. Uh, chaos of danger, and animals, and death, mm-hmm. and sex, and uh, incredible impulses that you don't understand. There's a lot of sexual imagery on the outside of churches uh, before the Victorian era. You know, we went through this whole period of purging all the, uh, what, what we would now consider obscene um, iconography off the churches in the, in the, in the mid-1800s. Uh, this mm-hmm. happened all over Europe. Um, I've seen some of these uh, icons they they you can see them in museums and whatnot they're amazing you know we it's now like it's porn yep. <laughs> you know? um, but to them it wasn't porn. it was like this was the church's way of saying you know you live in this chaotic world swept along by impulses you don't understand you know sexual impulses, emotional ones, spiritual ones, all of them, and full of danger the you know the church was often carved with wolves and dogs and um, all kinds of scary animals and scary vegetation, even like all mm-hmm. of that, was on the outside of the church. And then when you'd enter the doors, there would often the churches often had this like amazing symmetry that would just hit you the minute you walked in the door. Order, mm-hmm. order. Here, God takes the chaos of the world and turns it into order. Right? Yeah. Column, you know, um, you know, aisles heading <laughs> straight up this <laughs> way. All of it leading to the light that comes out of the the cracks of alabaster over the altar mm-hmm. right um, and so the, even the images culminate as you walk up the aisle into nonimage yeah. right into something that that transcends the image itself and just becomes the light of the world mm-hmm. and especially in the Middle Ages when they had figured out how to create a window <laughs> <laughs> they didn't understand the, 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 the sort of the weight of, of stone yet. Mm-hmm. all of that would come with the in the uh, Gothic period when we understood that, that how uh, structures actually worked. The flying buttress allowed us to build these much taller buildings because we understood pressure better. But the windows in the Roman churches were these tiny, narrow things because anything bigger would just collapse. So they had so like these four-inch-wide slots that they would fill with alabaster so that the light even that came into the church was all diffused. It wasn't clear. You couldn't see outside. It was just kind of warm, white mm-hmm. light. And all of that would be structured around the the altar at the front, yeah, and remember then also the priest never faced the congregation. that's a very recent um, hmm. change. the priest always faced away with the congregation towards the light all of the all of the service happened with everybody facing the same direction, looking beyond the priest to the light over the altar
1: right, hmm.
2: and so the The whole action of going to church was itself just just physically being in the room, walking in the door, Mm -hmm. looking at the iconography on the outside, walking in the door, sitting down and going to a mass was a kind of story Hmm. that you got told through the actions of going inside this building. Um, And and you saw the chaos of the world become order and then become transcendent, you know, meaning that you cannot comprehend light, you know. So the very—I mean, to me, the Romanist churches are magnificent. Mm. I mean, I, I, after a while, I, I, I couldn't wait to get to the next one because you know, <laughs> I just wanted to read these images and sit in those rooms and feel the history of thousands of years of people who have come and sat in those very places yeah. and and seen this iconography and tried to make you know a story out of that. Mm. Um, that's just one of the sort of. That's almost one of the sideshows of the pilgrimage. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah,
0: but definitely um, a, a highlight.
2: Right, and I mean, what going back to the tourism question, I mean, what do you call that when you know uh, the the Cluniac uh, you know m- monasteries formed these like way stations all across northern Spain? They uh, accepted money and payment for taking you in, or you bartered in some way. Um, but you know that's where, where that's where their um, power and strength came from in the in the in the Middle Ages was mm-hmm. the was the financing that erupted from being on this road to Santiago. They were essentially tourist rest stops. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a spiritual component, but you know, you when you start trying to divide or define those differences, you get into a really tricky place. Mm-hmm. You know, those were those were some of the earliest capitalistic enterprises the Cluniac monastery. <laughs> Of Northern Spain, you know and and you know capitalism didn't exist then i mean it was a feudal era but there were these these occasional outbreaks of like money making happening yeah. on the road in santiago I mean, it's one of the reasons why i was always interested in the road it's like so much erupts there that that confounds the sort of middle the, what we think of as the middle ages
0: right yeah, absolutely um,
2: right so um like I said, there's just so much. There's so much. One of the things I loved about walking the road is that the, that that history, that layered history, from you know the earliest, you know ninth century origins of the Catholic pilgrimage, uh, through the Romanesque period into the Gothic, and you know um, you get these great fights in Spain. Do you know about you know there was a big fight is to to take Saint James? Of, uh, you know Saint James is the national patron saint of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And three hundred years ago there was this fight about whether to <laughs> he was too he was considered too bellicose and too militaristic and mm-hmm. so there was a huge argument as to whether he should be replaced with um, Saint Teresa de Avila, right? Who's mm-hmm. former feminine and you know and, and 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 was very cool at the time. <laughs> <He> was a, <laughs> she was at one of her high watermarks. Yep. And it was an amazing fight. I mean, all these writers got involved, it was like an enormous debate and Santiago in the end won. Um, but barely. You know, there was a real split in the country as to whether they should sort of like shift out of this because you know the war against the Moors was over mm-hmm. and all that kind of weird racism that went with the uh, great conquista, as they call it, right? Yep. Um, now embarrassing, even three hundred years ago, right? Yeah. And uh, and they wanted to sort of shift out to this more modern, cool woman, you know, saint, mm-hmm. and uh, and ultimately traditionalist one.
0: <laughs> as they all uh, I want to wrap up with a couple questions about the way. Do you do you still have a few minutes to keep talking? Sure, sure, awesome. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious what it's like to see your stories taken by others and transformed into a new medium. Like, and I'm I'm really thinking in particular of the El Ramon scene in uh, in the way. Yeah. Like, what what went through your mind as you watched that unfold?
2: Well, so just so everyone understands. So I wrote this book and Emilio Estevez read it and decided to make a movie about the, about based on, you know, his reading of that book. Yeah. Um, but you know, he had in his mind this, the story that he was going to sort of interlace with whatever he loved in the book. Right. So the story is, is is, features Martin Sheen, right? So that's not a character in my book. That's, you know, the entire plot is Emilio's. Hmm. Um, but there are, but there's all kinds of bits from my book that are, that are in there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of them, the El Ramon scene, which is, uh, uh, well, I <laughs> encourage people to go see it or read it um, <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, it, 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 but it, it, essentially involves, uh, my coming into this, uh, one town, um, where the pilgrims, uh, rest stop was this one house. And when you, when you once you got in it and you met the proprietor, El Ramon, um, it took a while, but I, I suddenly realized he was probably schizophrenic, if not just outright insane. Um and I don't mean that like in a kind of wacky sense. I mean he was mentally ill. Right? Yep. And yet, um he ran this very bizarre <laughs> I'll <bet> again. <laughs> and and um and became this, uh, you know, kind of lovable character. Although there were moments when I was actually frightened to be in his house. You know, <laughs> I, I decided not to sleep there for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, the the thing that I that I found most enjoyable about the movie, from time to time, is I'd be sitting in there, and all of a sudden, there would be this entire sort of rash of dialogue, and I would go, "Oh, right, I, <laughs> that's me." There <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know, a couple of times, when... Uh, and there's a you know just a whole chunk of the book uh, mm-hmm. shows up, not just like the Ravon thing, but just like what people are saying as they argue you know, back and forth on the way to, on the way to Santiago. Mm. Um, it's um, I don't know. It's um, it's you know it's it's like you know you you know when you walk into a surprise birthday party for yourself <laughs> and you don't get it at first, you know where you you walk in and you're like hey look this. Just four of my friends in this restaurant, and they don't even know each other, and yet they're all here. I, how weird is that? Yeah. <laughs> and then they all jump up and yell "Happy birthday!" I like, "How did they? How did they all know that it was my birthday?" And I've done yeah. this several times. I was like, "Oh wait, this is a prize party." Yeah. And uh, and I had that was that kind of like delayed reaction. I was like, "Oh, that line sounds very familiar." And then I realized, "Oh right, it's, this is my book." <laughs> it's
0: I'm your like, life. So
2: yeah. So um, yeah, that was great. And I, I really thought, you know, the one, the one thing I would recommend, one real good reason I would recommend the, the movie is that there's like a million ways to get such a movie wrong. Many, many ways. I've seen many of these movies that when, you, when you touch on the, it's very easy to cave to the Shirley MacLaine view of this, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it all ends in grand epiphanies and these life-changing things and we all learn a lesson and move on to some new life. But what I loved about Estevez's reading of this and his version of this story is the the kind of fundamentally unchanged reality of the pilgrims at the end,
1: hmm.
2: right? That, that, that the things they thought they were here to fix, you know, the things that they thought they would change, those are the sort of unchanging aspects of their character. Hmm. It's these other things that change. Um, and most most movie makers completely cave to the sort of Shirley McLean magical thinking of mm-hmm. pilgrimage movies. I was terrified when I first saw this movie. And I thought that's how it would end. You know, everybody on their knees in Santiago clouds party, you know. Yep. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, I I thought he did a very nice job of capturing the nuance of trying to make that pilgrimage happen and having the pilgrimage frustrate that out of you. Mm. You know, doesn't happen for everybody, yep. but for most people, that is what happens. Um, you know, so it's it's a it's a far more sort of interior walk than you think. Mm-hmm. You think it's outdoors. You're out there. You're in the air. You're in the sun. Um, and by the end, you realize that much of what's changed is not the cigarette smoking or the weight loss. <laughs> 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 this sort of other way that you think of yourself. You know, but yeah.
0: Are uh, you? Are you aware of the dramatic impact that the movie in particular has had on English speakers walking the Camino? Like 10,000 more Americans walked this year than the year that the movie was released. And, you know, I think about that and, you know, movies, lots of people enjoy watching movies. Lots of movies are enjoyed, but there aren't that many movies that have such a profound impact. Thousands of people have been moved to train, to travel, to trek across Spain Simply as a result of having watched the film and, by extension, you know, been exposed to your writing about the Camino, like, what does that mean to you?
2: Well, uh, in in the most uh, sort of, you know, uh, mercenary terms, I will say I do know that that's (laughs) true because my royalty statement tells me that that's true. (laughs) Um, no, it was amazing. Like all of a sudden, like what? What's going on here? They'll say, "Oh, right, Emilio's movie has been out for six months." You know, um, and um, yeah, so there's no, there's no question. Like he, that movie awoke for a lot of people this, this long desire, to have Canella, to 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 go do something like that. Um, you know, yeah, I've, I've had many friends that I've you know known for you know 20, 30 years who suddenly went to the road went on the road to Santiago, and it's because of the movie, not my book. <laughs> you know? um, but, yeah, um, I think everyone was like, wow, that, you know, first of all, I, I think many people think it would, it would be too hard, you know, physically mm-hmm. too hard, or it would require all this, like, preparation and finding hotel rooms and, 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 you know, two things that all potential pilgrims should know. It's not that hard physically, mm-hmm. and you don't need all of that hotel room preparation. You know the road has been there for a thousand plus years, and those towns exist largely, many of them, to help pilgrims get to the next town. Right? Mm-hmm. You get into those little towns like Ordenios and these little places, and you realize, oh, this—it's only here for pilgrims. Yep. <laughs> no, that's the <laughs> only reason the town is there. Ordenios means little ovens. It was <laughs> only there to cook meals for passing pilgrims. That's the only purpose it had a thousand years ago, and largely that's still the purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And so, um, you know, there there is this very easy way to walk. When I took the kids, they were just amazed. You'd come into town and there'd be a place to stay, mm-hmm. you know, every town we went into. Right. And people greeted you and, you know, um, and it's it's largely safe. I know there was some uh, controversy last summer uh, about uh, someone who was murdered uh, mm-hmm. on the road. Um, and you know, and that happens that that's also, you can look through the history, you know, from time to time that happens, but I would say probably you're safer on the road to Santiago than you are in a bathtub, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of injuries. I don't know about that. It probably, probably pulled, uh, you know, muscles uh, and Achilles tendon. Uh, but, uh, but seriously, I, 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 uh, you know, if you travel, if you traveled the road, especially if you're, um. You know, if you're at all nervous about that, just traveling with a friend, I, I'm not sure there's a safer place you could be on the planet mm-hmm. uh, than with a friend on the road to Santiago. I'm
0: speaking with Jessica Johnson from Vermont, and uh, Jessica has an extensive pilgrimage background so Jessica I'm just gonna ask you to set it up for us where have you walked?
3: Um, I started walking in 2014 I did the Camino Francis from Saint Jean Pays de Port to Santiago and then apparently I wasn't done walking so (laughs) I decided to walk from Santiago out to Muxia hopefully Mm -hmm. I'm saying that the right way and from there, I walked to Finisterre, and from there, I walked back to Santiago. And uh, I was home maybe a month, two months, when I started planning my next Camino. I'm sure that sounds familiar to some people. Uh, 2015, I decided to spend three months in Spain, and I walked the Camino Norte from Irún to Oviedo, and i had had my eye on this um, not very well-known Camino called the San Salvador, mm-hmm. and I knew I wanted to do it, couldn't quite figure out how it would fit into my plans, but I took the bus from Oviedo down to Leon. And couldn't believe what I was seeing out the window of the bus that I would actually be walking through the Picos <laughs> de Europa. I, I kept saying to the bus driver, "Wow, wow, look at that!" I, I think I was annoying him. But when I got to Leon, I spent three or four days and then gathered my thoughts and walked the San Salvador up to Oviedo. From Oviedo, I did the Camino Primitivo and. Um Nothing against the Francis, but was not looking forward to when it connected uh, with the Francis. So I took the, um, the Green Arrows out of Lugo to Friol and Sobrado and stayed at the wonderful monastery there. And then joined the Camino Francis, I think it's in Arzua,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and... Did from Arzua to Santiago in, in one day, um, just kind of pledged on through. Um, and then from Santiago, I did the Camino Portuguese down to Porto on the coastal route um, and, and stopped in Porto. So that was 2015. And this year, my plans are the Camino Ignaciano. Uh, hopefully, I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And that goes from Leola to beautiful Montserrat. And it's about a, a month long Camino. Um, and I'm sandwiching that trip between some hospitalero work that I'm doing this year. So that's what's on schedule.
0: That's awesome. That's a ton of different walk in over the course of a couple of years. And so a lot of people listening will have just walked the Camino Frances, so they may not be familiar with some of those those other pilgrimage routes that you followed. So I'm wondering if you could tease out maybe a defining quality of each one of those routes that you followed. What's something that sticks out in your memory from each one?
3: Um, okay, well, anyone who's walked the Camino Frances knows it's Mm, hopefully, I'm not offending anyone with this, but fairly flat. Um, obviously, the first day and towards the end, there's mountains. So, I, I guess um, starting with the Norte, um, the terrain is is a little different. I don't want to discourage anyone from doing it. It's it's all doable, but it's it's a little different for sure. Um, albergues are spread out and facilities are not like the the Francis, um, but you are walking on cliffs that you are right next to the ocean. Um, it, it's amazing. I was sending pictures to my friends that were actually walking the Francis at the same time I was walking the Marte. <laughs> they were getting very annoyed at me. They were going, stop it, stop it, or we're taking the bus, or um, yeah, they couldn't believe what the pictures that I was showing them. It is truly paradise, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, continuing on, the, the San Salvador is everything that I hoped it would be. It was um, not very well um, populated, which was wonderful for me. I'm always seeking out places like that. There were three nights in albergues that I was completely alone. Now, granted, I was walking in October. This is not the case in the summer. But um, for me, that's pure heaven. For some people, that might be terrifying. But um, I always felt safe and had wonderful um, hospitaleros telling me, well, if you go here, they'll make you a nice dinner. And it's just wonderful. But the route was... Um, I would say the most strenuous that, that I've done, you are going through two mountain passes mm-hmm. through the Picos de Europa, and um, you pack your lunch, because there's no bars or restaurants up at the top, and you're literally walking on cow paths and, and pushing these majestic cows out of the way at times. Um, but it is it was... It was everything that I wanted it to be, and in, in, in an adventure off of the regular caminos, it was just wonderful. And I tell many people about it, and most people go, "I've never heard about it." So, um, <laughs> as the, as the Francis gets more crowded, maybe these other routes will will see more um, population. Um, the Primitivo was was. Fabulous, um, being one of the original routes, you know, it's it's historic on its own. The Hospitalis route, I would recommend anyone to take. Um, it's even incredible, you, yeah. Oh my gosh, um, I ended up by being with five people more or less um, at night during um, dinners and coffee in the morning, but during the day I was alone, and at night we would. Just look at each other and just go. Wow, what, was that real today? Did that really happen? This is. And anyone who's walking the Primitivo who thinks, you know, maybe I shouldn't do that. No, no, you, you need to. You need to do that. That's that's what makes that Camino so so special. Um, it was just wonderful. And then the Portuguese route, I would have to say my. My favorite favorite town was Bayona, um, and not to plug the Paradores, but um, <laughs> there there was a Parador there that a pilgrim had actually said to me, you know, it was eighty euros a night, and and it was one of their jewels. It's a castle. If you're driving or walking through that town, you see it up on the hill. Um, It was fabulous. And and I didn't really realize when I started walking the Camino Portuguese that um, Portugal has a um, Holland kind of feel to it. Mm. Uh, There's windmills along the coast. And um, it was was just beautiful. Very different from Spain in in many, many ways. So... Mm yeah beautiful beautiful and of course Vigo um fabulous town and and the church of the Virgin Peregrina in uh, Pontevedre that I I think all solo female walkers need to go to I mean the church is dedicated to peregrinas how can you not go there so um yeah those those were things that that characteristically stuck out
0: that's great and now you're heading to a much less traveled uh, route, uh, the Camino Ignaciano. So what is – draw? I guess I, I can guess that you, uh, you like the solitude that may be in front of you, but what else is drawing you to that route?
3: Um, I'd say when I started reading about it and the description said mountains, deserts, and plains, I just <laughs> went – Okay, that's for me. Um, It it happens to fall into a four-week walking um, schedule, which for me this year was perfect. And I picked up the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. Um, I am Catholic, and um, I I don't walk the Camino particularly for Catholic reasons, but it's a plus. It's, It's a nice thing. So picking up the book, I started to look at it, and he has four distinct sections of the book, which I think would be great to read as you're walking the four distinct sections of the Camino. And last year when I finished walking, I was in Barcelona, and I took the train out to Montserrat and fell in love. It is a gorgeous, magical, majestic place. Um, And to be able to walk there at the end of my Camino is just going to be so very special. I I do have to admit, it it will be a little odd to not be walking towards Santiago this time. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost all of the Caminos that I've done have that as, as the main ending point um, or at least part of it. So, this is completely different. It starts in Laola and it goes down through Rioja and other areas right to Montserrat. So, it's, it will be different. Um, I believe it's only been around or or refurbished, if you will, for a few years. So, it's, it's exciting to be going on a walk that not many people, A, know about, B, would even consider doing it. So I know I'll get that solitude. So that's, that's, um, that's a plus for sure.
0: That's great. It's your, your pilgrim and pioneer at the same time, which is a fun feeling.
3: Well, I, I tend to be walking upstream at times, um, when I was leaving Lyon, I had numerous people stop me and and say, no, 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 Santiago and like literally turn me around and push me back towards Lyon. And I would have to say, no, 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 you know, Oviedo and, you know, through my not so great Spanish, hold up a map and and point and, and act very confident so they would leave me alone. And then from Santiago walking to Porto, again, I was walking the wrong direction. Um, There are blue arrows towards Fatima when you leave Santiago, but they kind of disappear when you head out on the coastal section Mm. of the Camino Portuguese. So, again... Swimming the wrong way, <laughs> so and I know that the Camino Ignatiano crosses the Camino Francis, I believe, around Lograno. So again, going the wrong way, I, I guess that's um, starting to be something that I do going <laughs> going the wrong way in life. Yeah. But uh,
0: anyway, it's good. Um, most pilgrims walk the Camino Frances for their first pilgrimage, but you know, as that route gets more crowded and. Other routes, like some of the ones you've mentioned, become better developed. Uh, Some people are considering starting with a different route for their first. And so I'm curious, given your familiarity with so many of these different variants that people might consider, how would you advise a pilgrim in such a position? Would you advise someone not to walk the Frances for their first Camino?
3: Hmm. Very interesting question. I had a friend in Vermont um, who decided to walk the camino frances after she saw some pictures that i had taken from my first walk and she said should i walk the frances my my thought and and still is my line of thinking yes because you don't know what to expect you're not sure you can physically do it you're hoping you can but you're not sure and it gets your feet wet your feet wet your um, familiar with albergues, you're you're a more confident pilgrim to then go on routes where you may not be able to get a cup of coffee till one o'clock in the afternoon. I called my friend who walked the Francis last year and it was her first route and asked her if she was happy that she had walked that route instead of possibly other routes. and And she said yes. It boosted her confidence. She knew... All about the Camino. As most people that finish the Francis, when they get to Santiago, they feel they're experts. And yes, I I believe that they are. They're confident in their ability. They know what to expect. And then going off on other routes that are less populated and you may not be able to get the provisions that you're so easily handed to on the on the Francis that you have more confidence going forward. So I think the Camino Francis is a great place to start. And even if you only have two weeks, um, most people don't have the luxury of going and, and spending one month or even two in Spain. So even if you walk a little section of it and you go, yes, but now I want to see the coast, I think that's great. Changing subjects,
0: uh, I briefly discussed the subject of women walking alone with Mirka in an earlier episode. But when you wrote me, you indicated that you have some strong feelings on the subject. And so to set this up, after Denise Theme's disappearance and death last year, many started to question the safety of the Camino, and particularly the safety of it for single women walking alone. So what are your thoughts on the subject?
3: I think walking the Camino and especially walking it alone is one of the most important things that you can do as a woman. I I have very strong feelings about the safety of the Camino. I have never felt threatened, in danger, worried. I think it's it's a wonderful community. Of course you have to take steps to keep yourself out of situations, but that can happen in your hometown. That can happen anywhere that you are, but I think as a woman, sometimes walking the Camino by yourself might be the first time in your entire life that you're making decisions just for yourself. You wake up in the morning and you can walk one kilometer or you can walk 40 kilometers. It's, it's all up to you and I think it's very empowering, especially for women, to walk alone
0: so i want to strongly endorse the view that the camino is safe uh at least relative to the places that many or most of us live or travel relatively speaking it is very safe and i hope that people everywhere feel comfortable going there and walking Um, i also want to acknowledge that as is true everywhere women sometimes face discomfort unwanted attention and potentially be- behavior that's even more unsettling. And so, just in the interest of transparency, I feel like it's important to acknowledge those things as well. So, have have you ever had any bad experiences along these lines on the Camino?
3: I have never personally had a bad experience on the Camino. Never. Hmm. I've I've had some situations that could have escalated into something more interesting had I not been confident and and kind of let people know that I wasn't going to be part of anything that they might be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you walk into an albergue and you see a couple young guys in the corner and you see a 65-year-old couple from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You can choose to put your sleeping bag any place you want to. (laughs) Those guys in the corner, they're perfectly fine. They're safe, nothing's gonna happen, but be smart. Um, Put yourself in situations that um, you'll, you'll be safe at. And lots of times walking alone men will walk up next to you and, and want to talk and chat and 99% of the time they're wonderful, great human beings. Every once in a while, um, just like life, you will find yourself in a conversation with someone that you would like that conversation to end. And What I have done is said that my walking partner is right behind me and uh, I'm, I'm meeting them for wine at at lunch and I don't have a walking partner, but that person looked at me and went, okay, you know, adios, and and moved on. Um, I'm sure they're perfectly harmless, but um, saying things like that, I actually said to one person once, wow, I can't believe I pepper sprayed that dog back there, you know, and and he kind of looked at me, and he quickly moved on too. Um, Again, probably a perfectly harmless person, Mm -hmm. but I think – Walking alone, if you have an air of confidence about you, you will um, have people that that maybe think you're looking for a, a Camino boyfriend or someone to walk with or someone to protect you. Um, they're They're going to see that you don't need that and you don't want that, and mm. they just move on. So again, never a bad experience. Just things that it depends on how you act and and what you say that maybe enable people to stick around longer than maybe you want them to.
0: The so I've I walk with student groups, high school groups, so I routinely will be walking with sixteen to eighteen year old girls uh, on the Camino, and the experiences that I have seen um, entail. Uh, The most common is uh, for my students and actually for my co-leader, who's in her 20s, um, to have to deal with old man kisses. That is the most unwanted form of male attention. Um, There used to be an older man who stood on the trail about a kilometer outside of Boadilla del Camino. To, um, to kiss all of the women going past. And sometimes that even then becomes that it it actually does transform into, into groping at the same time. So, like, there's a, there, there's a common. Conversation about avoiding the the creepy old men, as they become referred to, as a result of that, which is sad because there are a lot of like really charming older gentlemen. But um, but the girls in my groups end up reflexively trying to stay away from older men on the route.
3: Right. Well, again, I think if you are walking with purpose past these gentlemen and you look at them, maybe you smile or not. You just keep walking. Knowing that a that he's out there, but that there <laughs> there are others out there, um just keep walking mm. you know don't, don't stop, and if they talk to you, um you know just just keep walking you know no no one really wants unwanted kisses from creepy old men, but <laughs> that happens everywhere <laughs> it it truly does,
0: yeah. Um, the one other experience I've had that I think is instructive, and again, I, I'm torn bringing these up because I don't want to scare people away, but I also feel like if I just say, it's totally fine, don't worry about it, like um, I, I also feel like I'm I'm kind of misrepresenting reality, right? So um, last summer, there was an hospitalero who asked if uh, my group could take a young woman along with us. Because she had been followed by an older man um, who she just couldn't shake. Um, and I mean, for me, I think the the lesson there is not like, watch out, there are predators on the Camino, but rather there is a major support network in place. So if you are facing unwanted attention and you tell an hospitalero, they're going to take charge they're going to really find solutions and that there are other people who you could be attached to for a while um who could help provide support um so i i mean what do you what do you make of, of i mean as you said there are there's that very very small group of unsavory people out there um so what other advice would you have um if someone walking the camino finds themselves in that situation
3: I I think definitely attaching yourself to a a safe group of people um, is is a great idea. Uh, On my first Camino, I had an older couple that um, they called me their Camino mom and dad. And although they knew I wanted to walk alone and they completely respected that, they would check Check in on me every few days and I, I found that very nice and reassuring and if someone was sitting with me at lunch they would kind of look at me and go you okay with this is this okay <laughs> <laughs> um, the Camino community as you know is is very tight-knit and everyone kinda keeps an eye out on everyone else and news of sketchy things I found spread very quickly um, I remember hearing something like, oh, something, you know, up ahead. And, and so people, people look out for each other, news spreads quickly, um, definitely a, a great group of people that soon become your Camino family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's almost harder to walk alone. Than, than anything. <laughs> people, especially this year, um, people on the Norte would see me and say, you're the one that wants to walk alone, right? <laughs> and it's just so respectful and, and so nice. But they would also know if if I wasn't in an albergue at night. Like, oh, great, glad you showed up. You know, we were mm-hmm. starting to worry about you. Of course, I'd roll my eyes and 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 sigh and go, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I was just watching the sunset over the ocean. <laughs> but um, yes, great, great group of, of people that you'd be walking with.
0: Yeah, so there, the, there are hazards everywhere. But if you go in with eyes wide open and take fairly basic uh, safety measures, then it can be a great experience.
3: Yeah, I found the best way to stay safe is to always know where you are. Um, Asking directions is a really big red flag to people that signifies, A, you're lost, B, you're foreign in a foreign country and that you're alone. So what I would do if I wasn't quite sure where I was is go have lunch somewhere. Go have a cup of coffee somewhere and look at my guidebook. There's great apps out there. Maps.me saved my behind quite a few times. <laughs> it doesn't need Wi-Fi. It doesn't need cell service. It shows you exactly where you are. Um, so when you are walking through a town and you are walking purposely and confidently, people just aren't going to bother you. Where if you're standing on a corner and you're looking around with that wide-eyed look and you kind of open yourself up to people coming by and going, do you need help? Would, would you like me to show you here? You know, let me give you a ride somewhere. It's like, no, no, no. I'm perfectly fine. Thank you. Um, so things like that. That's
0: great. Jessica, thank you very much for talking with me. And I hope that you have a great pilgrimage on the Camino Ignaciano.
3: Thank you so much, Dave.
0: As I said when speaking with Jessica, I approached the topic of pilgrim safety, and particularly solo women travelers safety, um, with some ambivalence, because I do recognize that uh, the personal threshold for every individual is different, and this is true whether we're talking about blisters, whether we're talking about Um, sort of walking through different levels of pain, um, staying in basic albergues versus posher ones or private rooms. Um, Everyone has a different level of comfort and a willingness to accept different levels of inconvenience, uh, uncertainty, and, and maybe even conditions that some would consider to be unsafe. Some might laugh off something that others would be deeply troubled by. And I'm particularly concerned about speaking frankly about some very real issues that do pop up on the Camino as a way of preparing, as a way of of opening eyes without closing doors and sending people scurrying away when the reality is again that compared with almost anything else that we do, the Camino is really quite safe and some very basic precautions can put you in a very good position. While the conversation that I had with Jessica was focused on steps that, that women can take to ensure that they are in the safest possible situation while on pilgrimage, I, I think it's worth reminding all of the men in the audience that men clearly have roles to play as well. And uh, you know we see this certainly in American society and I'm sure in many others that the, uh, the level of entitlement among many men is shockingly high and women have to endure all manner of unwanted attention in all parts of their life, uh, whether in the workplace, on the street, or on the internet. And that can certainly happen on the Camino as well. And I, I think it's just, it's critically important to remember, right? Like a woman walking alone is under no obligation to be your friend, your partner, to smile in your presence at the end of a long day, and when she does smile, it doesn't mean that she loves you or she's interested in you or anything other than she felt like smiling in that moment. Uh, you know, one of the things that I struggle with sometimes is how to be a male ally uh, while on the Camino. Uh, the There is something ingrained in me, like the sort of white knight-itis, right? The idea that if I see a woman in trouble that I ride in and, and, and come to the rescue and that's... Faulty thinking right women don't need a protective father or a white knight They're not fragile creations in need of bubble wrap and but there may be times where they do need a distraction or an intervention from unwanted attention and uh, so I think it's important that uh, That men walking are attuned to that and recognize that there are times when just simply moving over taking a seat having a presence in a conversation can help uh, break up a conversation that that maybe was unwanted, and and help shift things in a, a, a safer or more comfortable direction for those involved. Uh, again, these are these are these are tricky issues, and uh, I, I think the main message that I want anyone to take from the conversation with Jessica, and I, I think she would feel the same way, is you know go in with eyes wide open, but feel confident that. The Camino, again, relatively speaking, is a safe space. And um, while no place is free of unwanted annoyances, pests, and, um, and sometimes dangers, um, there are lots, lots and lots of kind, well-intended individuals who have your back if you find yourself in an uncomfortable situation. That's it for episode 10. Thanks again to Jessica for speaking with me about her experiences and her perspectives on pilgrimage and walking alone as a as a woman pilgrim, Been and to Jack Hitt for speaking with me about off the road, about the way, and all of his uh, many different experiences uh, in you know 35 years of uh, of pilgrimage. So. Uh, thanks, as always, to all of you for listening, as well. As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes. You can write to me at Camino podcast at com. Thanks for listening, for spreading the word, and uh, to those of you who have written in, I really appreciate hearing from you. That's it, and have a good week.